How do you address the quantitative and qualitative elements of cacao, particularly when it involves others' livelihoods? What really does terroir mean? Today on Well Tempered, we tackle these topics and more with the guidance of Madeline Weeks, PhD student and chocolate researcher and educator. I'm your host, Lauren Hynek, community builder, lover of human stories, and chocolate maker at Weekend Chocolate. You're listening to the first podcast about the smart, creative, and crafty women in the chocolate industry. Thanks for listening, and here's our show. Hi, well-tempered fans. Madeline Weeks is here with us from UC Davis. She is a PhD student and she's going to walk us through the journey of all of her work within academia and now within the chocolate industry where she is bridging the gap between fine cacao and chocolate and the academic arena. Madeline, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Lauren. Off the bat, what did you have for breakfast today? I knew you were going to ask that question. I make a green tea mate with raw cacao powder. Ooh, do tell. Do you have the recipe offhand? It's basically brewing mate tea and mixing that with coconut milk, cacao powder, coconut oil, cinnamon, chili peppers. It's like a spicy Aztec warrior chocolate and then blending that together. So it's really foamy. (laughs) I'm not into a fast breakfast. (laughs) That's definitely the cacao bulletproof version if I ever heard one. Definitely. We're going to kickstart this program with you sharing where you are, who you are, what you've been up to, because you have a super fascinating path. Again, really thrilled that you're here and would love to hear about it. Sure. So you've been heavily involved with the history of chocolate, anthropology of chocolate. You're now a PhD student. You describe to us, please, what it is that you're studying and how this came to be. Yeah, it's really been a long journey. And we've got an hour. Within geography, chocolate is actually a great subject because geography is looking at um, the interconnectedness of the world on different scales, going from the individual to the global. But it's also about connecting people to the environment. So my interest in chocolate actually started with a fascination for the tropical rainforest. And this goes back a really long time to when I was actually in elementary school and attended this talk on rainforest conservation. And I was in second grade, extremely motivated by this idea of uh, saving up uh, money to purchase an acre of rainforest that would go towards some conservation fund. It took me six months of selling lemonade and chocolate chip cookies to raise a mere $30. And I managed to buy that acre of rainforest. Um, I think the other part of that influence was I grew up in very much a foodie family in which food is our way of communicating and seeing the world. Those different passions began to coalesce when I was in high school and started a culinary club because I wanted to connect a very diverse student population. And I thought, what's a better way than through food? It's something fun we can do over lunchtime and wanted to start with chocolate as this basically a way to draw in as many students as possible. Um, And that's when I began to read about the environmental aspects of chocolate and how cacao um, traditionally was grown in this agroforestry system, very biodiverse tropical rainforest, and it brought back that childhood 
childhood fascination for environmental conservation in the context of this global food system. So I began to get really interested in how cacao was connecting people and the environment on a very real way, at the same time concerned for its future. Because even in high school, I, part of my research was reading about the deforestation. And I think I read one section of the book where if we continue to destroy the rainforest at the rate that we are, we may live in a world without chocolate. And it horrified me to think of living without chocolate. I loved eating it, of course. Um, so when I got to college, I, within my first year, basically declared that I was going to write a thesis on the history of chocolate. And my rationale was being in Spanish class, I started to learn more about those human dimensions of how cacao is very much integral to Mesoamerican culture and thought the great way to understand where it's going in the future and where it stands in the present is to understand its history. So that compelled me to study cacao from a historical perspective. And I focused on Mexico because there was a study abroad program that would support students going to Mexico where I could begin that first stage of getting to know the culture. So my undergraduate thesis was the first time that I started looking at cacao from a more academic perspective. And even though I was an economics major, um, the thesis landed up being more along the lines of anthropology and history because it required quite a bit of cross-checking between the historical documents and uh, comparing that to the contemporary uses of cacao in Mexico. And is this within then, I mean, what region of Mexico specifically? And also, were you dealing with kind of the general history or specific to, say, the Mayans or, or a people within Mexico or what is known as Mesoamerica at that time? Right. So it is more accurately Mesoamerica that I was studying. And I did some field work in Tabasco to interview cacao farmers, some ethnographic work in Oaxaca to visit the chocolate markets. But really, some of the things that I studied were more general to other countries in Central America as well. My thesis was interesting because it actually was not limited to just the Mesoamerican history. I started seeing a lot of overlaps temporally between what was going on in present-day Mexico, specifically looking at the role of women and how they've had a really interesting role with cacao. Initially, they were actually forbidden from drinking the cacao beverage. And if you go to some of the markets today, there are these really interesting beverages combining just cacao and corn, and women still play a very important role in the almost ceremonial purposes. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that tidbit. And what I love about your story as well is that you've seen to really blend the, the left and right side of your brain within all of your projects. So please continue. Right. So I was saying that women were one example of how cacao was this boundary crosser. Uh, and I identified three areas in which cacao crossed worlds. So one was between the masculine and the feminine. The second arena was between the European world and uh, Mesoamerican culture. And this was more along the lines of the bloody colonial Spanish history and looking at cacao represented in 
these ancient tombs and um, even churches where it was the tree of life, but in a very Catholic setting. So you could start to see the transformation of society and religion in that sense. Uh, the third way in which I discuss cacao as a boundary crosser um, was between the celestial, so the heavens and the underworld, or sometimes referred to as Shibalba or hell, and uh, pulled up some really interesting references to the cenotes, which are these um, pits in Mexico that you can still go swimming in them today, where cacao is actually this tree within the pits, um, indicating that it may have been considered not only a food of the gods, but something that could facilitate the crossing to the underworld. Um, and you can actually see examples of that today with other animals like monkeys and jaguars that are considered facilitators of that crossing between the worlds. So in those three arenas, I looked at cacao as a boundary crosser. Um, the historical part of my thesis, while it was compelling, I felt like it was only one half of the story. And I wanted to also understand the environmental or the ecological dimensions. So after completing my undergraduate degree, I went back down to Mexico, hoping to study ecology as a master's degree. And... and I started visiting all the universities and was basically asking how somebody with a social sciences background in economics um, could enter a field like biology or ecology. What's interesting is that these days, cacao is not grown or valued as much in terms of an export crop in Mexico. But what is very valuable is coffee. So I landed up doing this alternative or very complementary collaboration in Veracruz, Mexico with the Institute of Ecology. And they were looking at shade-grown coffee and specifically how shade-grown coffee could facilitate community development efforts. So they've done so much work on the environmental aspects, looking at the benefits of certain amounts of shade cover, and yet they hadn't looked so much at the human dimension. So I was very fortunate and met this biology professor who believed in the value of having the social science research combined with the natural sciences. Together, we worked on a Fulbright application, and that enabled me to go to Mexico and spend one year doing quite a bit of mixed methods field work to ultimately ask this question of, is there a link between high-quality coffee production, um, because that was their community development effort, and quality of life. So I really wanted to know what is the reality of the coffee farming families, and how do we talk about that in an academic setting? And would you be able to give a very brief synopsis of what your findings were, and, and maybe if that applies to cacao in your own belief system? The findings were actually more of the learning lesson. And this is actually why I pursued a master's degree was even in the first few months of collecting the data, I realized that this project was much larger than I would be able to complete in the time that I had in Mexico. So as a way of honoring those 
coffee farming families, I wanted to spend an extra year reflecting on the experience. And that's when I completed a master's in geographical research, which was actually a process of thinking about the fieldwork design and addressing the limitations of the study. So ironically, my conclusion at the very end of this, trying to link up quality of coffee and quality of life, was that it's not something you can so simply formulize. I was dealing with a very small sample size. One of the biggest lessons was actually changing my research approach from going from being very quantitative focused and trying to look at just the economics of things like farmer income, expenditures, and gravitate toward those intangible benefits they were receiving from shade-grown coffee. And that includes their cultural heritage, their family tradition. And trying to put all of that together is not something that I could formulate in my master's thesis. So it is actually similar to my ongoing question. And one of the things that has actually motivated my PhD studies is there is so much great work being done by, in the case of coffee, coffee roasters, in the case of chocolate, chocolate makers and cooperatives, and yet actually understanding what that means on the ground in terms of impact to livelihoods and well-being is really difficult to measure and understand. Very well said. Yes, and I'm in total agreement with you. I had just actually finished recording a mini-sode for this podcast in which I discussed that briefly because I'm not a numbers person. I've never really been uh, involved with understanding the economics to such a finite degree, but yet I know that within this industry, I need to get a better grasp of that. But ultimately, my largest concern is understanding how people are affected at all Mm -hmm. levels of the supply chain and value chain and even the consumer chain, because I think cacao is visceral and behind the commodity setting, it is still something that provides, as we've discussed, ritual, ceremony, and enjoyment. So then it needs to be, in my opinion, monitored differently than, say, steel. Totally. Even going beyond the word monitored, it needs to be talked about and interacted with in a very different manner. Because talking about chocolate is talking about so much more than the business transaction of selling a product. It's also about connecting people on a very personal level. And getting back to the roots of where that cacao came from in the first place, which is the environmental side. Yes. And how, if you would like to divulge, what then is your focus within the environmental realm of these projects, masters and PhD programs that you're involved in? It's actually looking at that interrelationship between people and the environment. So not looking at the environment in an isolated sense. And I think it's also important to note that cacao, along with coffee, are agricultural commodities. So it does require human manipulation or extraction of the natural environment. And what that means is such a range. 
on that, I just had a thought that, as you mentioned, it requires human capital, but it's yeah. also regenerative. And so we have a unique opportunity to see if that applies to people as well. Like what's regenerative about not only the environment, the commodity and crop it in itself, but also these communities. Yeah. I'm not sure if that lends a bridge into how this led you to your PhD, but it's as you mentioned, a huge topic and so fascinating. So I'm just really enjoying hearing how you're able to go into precise details of all of these angles. Yeah. How did the coffee project in a way lead you to study further? You were not satisfied with that outcome, not to say that your work wasn't good, but that you knew that there was so much more to do. And then also shifting from coffee to cacao. What was that like? Part of it was also realizing that the more that I knew about chocolate, it seemed the more questions I had and even more uncertainty as a consumer of what made good chocolate anymore. It completely made me question good on the dimensions of the flavor profile to those environmental aspects to the social good. And it is a really hard question that I felt was, just getting a taste of it in my master's degree and wanted to be able to dive into it further with my PhD of looking beyond sustainability standards, metrics, um, and asking what are actually the best ways to be delivering that good. I mean, sometimes part of it is measuring and doing the evaluation work, but the other part is on the ground and collaborative efforts that are not necessarily delivering these uh, immediate outputs, but they may be more along the lines of a long-term goal of achieving that greater sustainability. Indeed, yes. I also want to move on to talk about other things, but at the same time, I'm stuck here in wanting to continue to ask questions within this because I'm sure these are things that you discuss with your colleagues all the time. But when we talk about sometimes that scarcity of cacao or that, as you mentioned from the beginning, when you even knew as a high schooler or as a young adult that cacao might not always be here. And we discuss this lengthening and the longevity of incorporating it into our lives in a sustainable and ethical manner so that it is always there. Do we have that time? This research takes time, but ultimately not to say that you need to give us a forecast, but it is interesting to consider what this timeline is in regards to our work, not only as researchers or students of life and commodity, but also as chocolate makers or chocolate consumers. Right. I think the time dimension is what should be compelling people to be looking beyond the individual aspects um, in their work, because it seems to be that we're reaching a point with, I mean, the broader context of the Anthropocene and climate change and the fact that we are needing to go beyond a very economic-driven world, that collaboration is going to be completely essential in actually reaching those goals of transforming what cacao can be in terms of being truly good for people in the environment. It does concern me if people are not acting fast enough because some of these changes are happening on the ground in real time. And it also takes a lot of courage to be kind of working counter 
to what are the traditional notions, whether that is going beyond standard business practices or beyond thinking of chocolate as something that you just sell. What just came to mind for me, I had seen this on a Facebook post recently. It is a phrase that says something along the lines of, when will we learn that taking from the earth or causing this destruction does not provide money? And Mm -hmm. I find this irony in that hundreds of years ago, cacao was used as currency. So here we are again with this realization that actually cacao can provide life, cacao can provide sustenance, cacao can provide a manner of business, but we don't need necessarily to to have the monetary bills within our hands from it, rather just appreciate it. And, and that's a very general statement to what is much wider with interpretation, but I like that people doing the work that you're focusing on now are making us consider those questions. Yeah. Let's shift gears just a bit and talk now about your PhD. You're in your first quarter at UC Davis, and I'm sure you get asked this question quite often, but why a PhD? Why at this time? (laughs) Uh, The timing, I like to think of myself as a late bloomer, maybe like a little cacao pod that needed (laughs) more time to ripen on the vine, because it took me five years after finishing my undergraduate degree before coming here, even though... Even since high school, I knew that I wanted to do a PhD and wanted to do it along the lines of something related to food systems. Chocolate has, for me, been this uh, lifelong catch-all for that interconnectedness. So the why now is in part because it took this long to personally get a better sense of what was going on in the industry but also have the support to actually study this within a unconventional setting of the interdisciplinary graduate group at Davis um, in geography and with the incredible support of my advisor, Ryan Galt. It, It happened that he is working on a chocolate project that all this time has been exactly in line with my research interests. So it was really a matter of perfect timing where we happened to talk just a few weeks before the PhD application deadline and realized that it was the perfect match. So that's the timing aspect. On a very personal level, though, I'm doing the PhD, just like my master's was not actually for myself. It was a way to honor the coffee farmers The PhD is on a much deeper level to honor my Chinese grandfather. He was an economics professor, also a foodie, and a world traveler. And I was fortunate to grow up with him almost like a second father. And he taught me to really love and appreciate diversity through food as this lens of really understanding the world. his slant on economics was also more, he, he taught me to think about intergenerational welfare and global systems. His focus was actually labor economics, which may explain my interest in looking at household livelihoods and income and well-being of smallholder farming families. So because I've been so incredibly inspired by him, Doing a PhD 
has been my lifelong goal to recognize all the things that he's taught me. And he actually passed away right before I began my studies at UC Davis. So what keeps me grounded every day is thinking about those lessons that he taught me to be thinking about the bigger picture and going beyond that temporal benefit for one person and really thinking what are the intergenerational reverberations of whatever work that you do within the short lifespan. What a beautiful tribute, Madeline, and so wonderful that he was able to instill in you those values. Thank you. I would ask if you have any specific memories around chocolate or cacao with him. Funny enough, he and my grandmother lived in Burlingame, which is very close to the Ghirardelli chocolate factory. So every Sunday we would meet for Chinese dinner. And I was actually forbidden from eating chocolate because my aunt thought that it would cause acne, which I now disagree with. (laughs) Um, And after these Sunday dinners, I would walk outside of their house and smell chocolate. And it was such this intense smell that completely overwhelmed my entire body. So I think in those very formative years of learning to value family, I was also being literally seeped with chocolate. Oh my, it is an unmistakable smell to be around at least that factory environment. I mean, just being in Seattle when you can catch a whiff of the Teo factory, or I happened to be in Chicago a few months ago, and I'm not familiar with which company it is, it's there and it's very palpable when you do get kind of that misty, <laughs> here it comes. But yeah. I think it's actually um Lommers in Chicago because <laughs> funny, between full Seattle and Chicago, I've actually smelled my way to the factory. <laughs> Kept following the path in Seattle, landed up at the Theo factory and in Ch- Chicago, landed up at the Blommers chocolate factory. <laughs> chocolate is a way of following me and I follow chocolate. <laughs> Yeah, I feel the same way. I, mean, I even made the taxi driver take an alternative route so that I could discover where it was coming from. But anyways, I digress. Thank you again for mentioning the story of your grandfather. I think that's just another element of cacao and chocolate and that it is so deeply rooted within us and our memories. I would now turn to your time. You spent a lot of time, it sounds like, in the Bay Area. And you have worked specifically with Dandelion Chocolate as a production assistant and now as a guest writer on their blog. And there's some things that you mentioned in a recent article that I'll let you go into a bit further, but that is on the definition of terroir. And that's another hot topic in the industry right now because we are dealing with how do we as a general industry determine definitions of the parameters in which we work and how we talk about things without, in my opinion, without greenwashing. And additionally, how to get the final end consumer into a position of power and education that they can make discerned decisions. This latest article you've written deals with this subject. So if you wouldn't mind just spending a few moments on what that word terroir means to you and ultimately what you determined was your own definition. Sure. Before starting my PhD, I had been about two months volunteering in Belize and Guatemala. And the premise of that, it was part of a year I took off between my master's and PhD was to get back to the ground and have more public dissemination of whatever work I'm doing in academia. I I don't think that 
academia or research should be kept in this closed box. I really think it should be made accessible to the people for whom it's most relevant. And I have a very unique understanding of chocolate. And sometimes it's hard to explain that to other people. So within the first few months at starting at Davis, I was working on this project with uh, my advisor, Ryan Galt, and another student in which we're talking about this word terroir, which, as you mentioned, Lauren, is becoming really hot in the chocolate industry. It originally came from wine and is used to describe a certain place where the grapes are grown. And there are different definitions. We've actually been looking at the historical uh, trajectory of this term in which it's not just referring to those biophysical properties or the soil. It was also very much a regional term to describe the cultural practices. So as we were discussing this one day, I realized that my personal experiences and journey with cacao are very formative in the sort of research that I was pursuing. So the Dandelion article is in part a way to have the public dissemination of that volunteering time before starting my PhD, but it's also to ground and situate where my academic studies were going. And I define terroir in this context as interconnectedness. If we're asking where something so complex as chocolate is coming from, specifically looking at that incredible bouquet of flavors and how those flavors are different for each country and context in which it's grown, what is causing that? If we call that terroir, I see it as not only the standard biophysical properties like the soil, the cacao varieties, the surrounding shade cover, but there's also very much a human dimension of the culture practices like decisions of when to harvest the cacao pods. Uh, this is actually one thing I learned from working in Mexico and my own upbringing is that you need to pick fruits when they're ripe so that they have their full flavor. That's one cultural practice. Another is deciding how and when to ferment, which actually becomes very scientific in the sense of you need to be constantly experimenting and adapting. And another one is roasting it and processing cacao. So there are thousands of decisions that, that begin with which seeds to plant to what temperature at which to roast the cacao. And I believe all of that is shaping the eventual flavor of the chocolate and in a sense can be considered a different definition of terroir. So that's what I write about in the Dandelion article. I don't expect everybody to agree with me. And I also recognize that my own definition will probably change as I continue learning about the complexity of chocolate. That's what I find personally so fascinating about entering this industry at this time is that there's a lot of wiggle room for your own personal interpretation. And mm -hmm. in a way, there's a lot of beauty to that too, because it allows us then to identify even further with something that we recognize as true. I do think we need to overall come to certain boundaries, but even within that, that there's then this flexible idea of, well, because I have been to Belize and then I taste a bar from Belize, 
I can make my own valuation about those flavors or that terroir because I will have had a different experience on the ground than maybe you had when you were there. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think chocolate should be used as a form of awakening curiosity, which in part is one of the reasons why I'm doing the PhD. And I forgot to mention this. It's pretty critical that I love teaching. And that was another thing that my grandfather taught me is you need to educate the future generation. Chocolate for me is a great way to get people asking questions. And whether it's that self-discovery of a new flavor profile and origin or getting down to more of the scientific or the research questions about what was the process behind this cacao bar, I think it's a great way for people to open up a conversation and start learning together. Mm -hmm. So without sounding cheesy, do you see yourself teaching in the future? Or what within you receiving your PhD will you do with that? Or do you hope to lend to the world with that degree? I would love to teach, not necessarily in the conventional sense. I would love to teach in the sense of inspiring minds. And that may or may not be in the traditional uh, academic setting. It, I think the world is changing quite rapidly. And <laughs> by the time that I finish my PhD, it may be a completely different monster out there um, professionally and in terms of the research opportunities too. The teaching is the one thing that I've stuck to my entire life. And I think there are different ways that you can achieve it um, in a professional setting too. So my mind continues to open every single day. And right now, for the coming years of the PhD, I am committed to doing really great research that feels grounded in reality. Thank you. And along that line, we had already talked about this a bit, but and especially within the Yen Conference that just happened in Seattle, there was a push to understand how academia could play a role within the chocolate industry and for chocolate professionals, whether that be the conversations that are started or the connection that they have between research and then education for consumers or even helping people on the ground, as we've mentioned. So what in kind of your ideal scenario or even that you see happening currently in the contemporary society is that relationship? How does academia need to or is relating to the chocolate industry? One of the things that gives me great hope is there does seem to be this willingness to step outside of the traditional research and have much more collaboration and open discussion with academia. So from the unconference, we gathered people's feedback on what are the key research areas. And on the same end, there's quite a bit of great research already being done on cacao and chocolate. Much of it is coming from the origin level. So what we're working on right now, and this is actually with support from Carla Martin from Harvard, is synchronizing those two arenas. On the one hand, getting a sense of what are the key research questions from the industry, and on the other, what is the existing research that's available by asking those respective ends and trying to put those together so that people have a better sense of where to go for inf information. One of the key problems or 
opportunities that was raised during the unconference was there's no common place for people to go and access information. So we are aware of that. We are open to thinking creatively about how to actually make that happen. And it's one of those examples of how the academic researchers are really trying to move beyond and take what research I think should actually be about, which is communicating valuable information so that people can decide what to do with it. So I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Is it more along the lines of in the past, research has been done, articles have been written, and they might be filed away into a place that someone retrieves when they need to find that particular piece of information. Whereas maybe now we're, as you discussed, entering an open source time in now our world of using the internet and speaking openly with each other, that there could almost be like a Wikipedia of cacao information that anyone could get a hold of. Right. That would be my dream. And I think it would be many other people's dreams too. By collaborative, I'm also talking about not just the space of the internet, but creating alternative spaces for people to have these discussions, similar to the unconference in which you're getting representatives from industry of all scales and the researchers together and asking those sticky questions about what are some of the hardest problems going on and how can we admit our mistakes uh, and learn from them and move forward. Specifically, putting together some working groups to talk about things like alternative measures for the economic standards, how to measure impact. Those are some of the ways that we're hoping to be moving forward in the coming years of really having more synergy between academia and industry. Do you have any tangible examples, what you've heard others who have collaborated with certain chocolate companies or even cooperatives at Origin to then start to build this new reality of academia and industry? Two that come to mind, there's one called Coco Collective, and it's operating in that liminal space, trying to have impactful social justice work um, by collaborating with places like My Mountain Cacao. And I think they had gotten Raka Chocolate to uh, donate or invest a certain amount of the profit into My Mountain. Another is Yellow Seed, which is using storytelling as this platform to galvanize people and think beyond cacao as a commodity to something that is really adding value to livelihoods of cacao farmers on the ground. So there are a number of emerging, I would call, actors in this space, which I think is really exciting. It also means that it's transforming what the world of chocolate looks like. Very much in agreement with you. I've actually had the fortune to work quite closely with Nancy Zamorowski of Yellow Seed, and she's a very passionate woman. Maya Mountain happens to be run also with women leaders, Emily Stone and Maya Granite. Well, I guess Maya's involved in Uncommon Cacao, but Emily Stone really leading the way there. And it's just so encouraging to be able to have access to people who not only care deeply, but are doing great work. And I think we have a bright future of what does happen at Origin and then trickling up to chocolate in itself being more accessible and healthier in that larger definition. Totally. And I am all about supporting 
supporting these great efforts to really promote the people that I think are doing a wonderful job. So I've I'm in ongoing conversation with Uncommon Cacao about how to merge whatever work I'm doing in the academic space to their ongoing efforts. The surveys that I had collected in Belize and Guatemala, we're now talking about, well, how, how do we have a conversation about this? Because it is very complicated to talk about livelihoods and impact in that space where we have more questions than answers. And you know, within that, Madeline, what does it feel like or what experiences have you had as a woman in academia and as a woman in chocolate? Because you do really straddle those two arenas. Can you speak to us about your feelings there? Sure. I am gradually learning this very special role that I play as a woman doing research on chocolate. I think the reality of it first hit me when I was studying coffee in Mexico, where as a woman, I gained a different sort of access to the communities, meaning that I could talk to the other women and really empathize with them, help out with some of the household chores, like the cooking, and be able to talk to them in a different way. What I also realized is that it meant I could talk to the men in a different way, meaning I could ask them more about the emotional aspects of cacao cultivation or coffee cultivation. And this is where I also straddle between the very quantitative, more objective side of my brain and the qualitative, creative, emotional side. Because with the men, I was asking not only about how much money, so the pure numbers of income from what they were selling, but also those intangible benefits of the value being a farmer had to them. And I remember the very first protocol, I it was actually a test protocol I was doing in Mexico. I was walking through the farm with the farmer and at one point I asked him something that actually made him cry. And I realized then that this relationship he has or his activity as a farmer goes way beyond cultivating something to sell it on the market. There is a very deep emotional connection that people have to the land. And I sense that as a woman, I have a different way of being able to ask people about that experience. It's also very challenging because I've been in situations where it's a very male-dominated hierarchical society. And knowing that I sometimes have to be swimming upstream and fighting against the current has been challenging, which is why I keep with all of my research trying to look beyond myself and asking what is the bigger picture questions that we need to be addressing? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's integral to to all of us that do this work in whatever format that might take, that it's really going inside. Because if we live every day just for us, particularly within something that is so vital to the health of communities, and as I see it, the environment, and ultimately the world, we need to be taking on these larger, these larger kind of almost existential questions, because totally. <laughs> it, it really is so much more than just one person can take on. And here we are as a very nascent community, and group of individuals who are tackling as we are now defining it as craft chocolate, fine cacao, but 
it's going to grow. And if it doesn't grow sustainably and with the right intention, it's going to get way out of hand. And unfortunately, it's going to harm a lot of people. Mm-hmm. We call it fine, but there's a messiness to the industry too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Along that, do you have another recommendation for a definition there? Oh, I've actually pitched this idea to Greg at Dandelion where the coffee world uses the term specialty and their definition of specialty is just that it's special, (laughs) however you define special. And I think that might be applicable to whatever is going on in chocolate as well. Bean to bar, it's craft, it's fine. It's special. It is special. I could agree on that. My personal fave, and I might as well use this platform to say it here, but I've also spent a lot of time in the specialty coffee field for a time before getting all the way into chocolate as I am now. I considered being a green buyer for some of the roasters here in Denver, Colorado, but I really enjoy their terminology of third wave coffee. And I think applied to chocolate, that makes a lot of sense to say third wave chocolate in these new companies that are evolving to easily define for the consumer what they're buying as opposed to bean to bar. That's that's not something that I really identify with. Yes, it's from the bean, but as many people have stated, that the sentiment bean to bar is erroneous because that's also what Nestle does. That's also what Cadbury does. And how are we going to separate ourselves, as you're saying, using the term specialty chocolate is one way, but we do need to kind of determine something that distinguishes and makes us succinctly different. Right, right. And I think people within that community understand that there is a fundamental shift going on. One of the challenges is how to get people outside of the chocolate community to understand that on the same level. And just to put on my very academic hat, it's been wonderful, even within my first quarter at Davis, to think very meta and theoretical about this. So I was reading Thomas Kuhn's uh, Scientific Revolutions and could see quite a few analogies to what's going on in the chocolate world where it seems to be going through this upheaval on a systemic fundamental shift and the world of chocolate as a business and industry, as a way of doing life and interacting with each other is changing on ways that are shifting so, so drastically. Yeah, in a way, it's unprecedented. It doesn't hurt that right now we're in it. So it feels a bit closer to heart than maybe the average person. But I still agree with you that yes, there is now an acknowledgement that something exists as an alternative. There's not just what's available to you at the supermarket or what many people deem as candy. There's now this additional product that carries weight and adding value to that weight so that it's not only a price point, but it's also an understanding and a comprehension of how many tiers that this affects. Right, right. I like where this is heading and we're doing some of the work here just right now within this hour of the podcast and that is asking the questions, coming together to try to resolve what some of those new definitions might be and also just sharing and celebrating each other's participation in it because we're the first to acknowledge that we have to have one another to push forward. Mm -hmm. Maybe a lighter subject, how you identify as a writer and how much storytelling and writing plays a part in your own personal identity. I would love for you to talk about how that does relate to your person and even within your work. 
So I, I mentioned that my grandfather was and still is the inspiration for my PhD on very much an academic level. Another huge influence was actually my grandmother, who was an artist. And I like to think that I take after both of them, where I truly fall in love with some of the landscapes and the beauty of these cultures that I've had the opportunity to interact with in Mexico, Belize, and Guatemala. I started wanting to share that with, first and foremost, my family. So I created this website just as like a platform to have pictures and uh, stories. And it's been going on for a couple of years now. It's transformed into this space where every once in a while, if I feel inspired, I like to write something more about those life philosophical questions that I'm going through. And it's also a creative outlet because I found with doing the academic research, it's really important to keep myself excited and constantly engaged. Uh, people sometimes look at me and say, you're studying chocolate. How can you how can you not like it? And it is really challenging sometimes. So having that creative outlet is a way to also inspire me. I'm So much of my work I do for other people that this is the one almost selfish endeavor. <laughs> That's a good point. And I think a lot of us within chocolate have this creative streak. Mm-hmm. And it can be parlayed through many different mediums, whether that is writing or within packaging or within even the chocolate itself and how you bring it to life. So I appreciate that you were able to also give that break to your own identity because it's so important to nurture as well. Yeah. It sounds like you can ultimately get burnt out no matter what you're doing, no matter how sweet, pun intended, the job might be. We're all still working at capacities because of our access to technology and just this stamina that we're now kind of required to uphold. And I can even say as a budding chocolate maker, when I think about scaling a business, it's very overwhelming. Do you have then any advice, particularly let's say within the academic structure or those considering entering that of how to balance, as you said, what is being selfish in the interest of your subject, but also being selfless in how you share that. This is where chocolate is that perfect. I use chocolate as my metaphor for everything. (laughs) And it really is the bittersweetness of life where you can go overboard on either end of the spectrum I don't know. I think talking to people and externally saying why this is important to you, but also having that internal retrospective time to ask, is this still meaningful to me? What I try to do is think about what makes me happy. And (laughs) this is both in terms of my research, what am I most engaged with and Um, fascinated by but also in a lifestyle and recognizing that we are human beings too, giving permission to sometimes take longer make mistakes and admitting that sometimes we do need help in this it as you're saying there's a lot of uncertainties going forward and sometimes for me at least that's one of the hardest things is asking for help And at the same time, it can be really relieving because it makes you feel like you're part of that larger community. 
Very well stated. My biggest takeaway from the industry thus far is that, yes, it's open, but you can't be afraid to ask for help. And, you know, a lot of your connections and a lot of your learnings are going to come not because it's dropped in your lap, but because you seek it. That might also be the definition of research and the definition of study. And I can very much appreciate where you're coming from and, and what you lend to this industry. Thank you. Yes, thank you. If we could just close out with our two questions that we asked you every guest, and I know that there's one that gives you a little bit more trouble than the other. So we'll start with the simple <laughs> one. And you've answered it quite eloquently in other ways throughout the podcast. But if you might be able to summarize or provide new insight here into what cacao means to you. In part, it depends on my mood. <laughs> it cacaos everything. It As a verb, it is something that catalyzes curiosity, inspiration, and galvanizes change. On a very deep level, cacao is actually about relationships. It's about having a relationship with other people, with the environment, and even with yourself, and being able to appreciate. It's the circle of life. Yeah. So this might take on many fold of what comes to mind, but the question is always, what chocolate would you take you were headed to the cosmos? And that could be particular makers, even regions of an area. And I think we had talked about how if you wanted to take a spin on this, it would be what regions you hope to see come to life. Well, I'm actually going to take a spin on your question and say it would be any chocolate that takes me first to the cosmos. And by this, I mean any chocolate that when I put it in my mouth and start to go through that journey of the taste experience, it completely blows my mind. So the one that I've been really excited about recently was at the Northwest Festival, I tasted Tabal chocolate and he was using Enliven. There was something so different about that chocolate that when I was tasting it, I literally had to turn around, <laughs> I stopped in my tracks and tell them how amazing it was. For each person that is going to be completely different. Taste is a subjective experience. But for me, any chocolate that is so beautifully complex, it has that perfect harmony between the bitter and the sweet. It is both rich and savory and deep and playful at the same time. That's the sort of chocolate that makes me go to the cosmos. And that's what I would bring. Touche, Madeline, touche. <laughs> Thank you for providing the spin on my spin of the question. <laughs> I would love to add to the show notes who you just mentioned, but they're using Aliven cacao. Is this the nonprofit out of Nicaragua? It is. Aliven and the chocolate maker who is using it is Dan Beeser. His last name is B-I-E-S-E-R. And his chocolate is Tabal, T-A-B-A-L. And where's he based out of? I need to find this. Uh, Wisconsin. Great. Okay. It is my wish that many more chocolates take all of us to the cosmos. I savored one last piece and it was my motivation before this podcast and I started to tear up and laugh at the same time. It was that beautiful. <laughs> I have had some sushi like that and I look forward to, to that experience with chocolate, even though I enjoy every bite. 
But yes, the what you're speaking of is truly special. Well, thank you again for your time, for your determination to resolving what is really a global issue and, and making it community-based and, and research-based. We will look forward to hearing how your time at UC Davis goes and what you and Ryan ultimately bring to the table. And, and thank you again for your transparency in this. Thank you for this opportunity, Lauren. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you. Oh, that's what I meant to say, <laughs> but, um, that it's about reciprocity. Talking about cacao as relationships, it has to be this feedback. And I think that's why I changed your question to which chocolate would I take to the cosmos of which one takes me. It has to be two ways. Thank you, Madeline, for being well-tempered. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to today's show. I'm so excited to bring to you in Episode 7, Mackenzie Rivers of Map Chocolate. Visit wkndchocolate.com forward slash podcast to read today's show notes and sign up for the Start Your Weekend newsletter to be notified of future episodes. I also welcome chocolate and cacao industry professionals to join our Facebook group, Well Tempered. This show has been produced, mixed, and edited by me, Lauren Heineck. Our intro music and closing song, Chocolate Store, is by Anna Garcia. Thanks again for being here, and stay well-tempered. Oh.